I think I'm live. Here we are, season two, episode one of Live from the Drum Room. Very exciting stuff. You guys thought I forgot about you, didn't you? Not quite. Not quite. Um, I'm excited because my old buddy Steve Smith is here. He's. This is the first time I've done this, actually. I've got him waiting in the waiting room. Who knew I had this technology all this time right under my little finger? So this is exciting. Steve's uh, patiently waiting. Good to see some folks here. I figured we'd give you guys a chance to kind of get settled, get in your seats, you know, in, in this virtual little get together. So I got two computers going so I can try to read some, some comments. Rich, Aaron, Jim. Hey, happy belated birthday, Jim. Uh, okay, so Anthony, good to see you, brother. Los in the house. Okay, the gang's all here. Look at this. And Jeff Allison. All right. All right, I'm going to get Steve in just a second. Um, going to try to squeeze a whole lot of stuff into about an hour. And uh, first of all, I hope everybody's doing well and staying safe and uh, staying sane. It's been a crazy summer. I know for a lot of people, it's been a pretty good summer for me. Um, spent some time on Martha's Vineyard, which we do every year, not as much as we normally do, but had our grandkids down for three weeks, which was great. Um, that really made the time special. So let's see, what else can I tell you? I'm going to have Danny Serafin on the show on this coming Wednesday, September 2nd at, that's going to be at 2 PM Eastern time, 11 AM Pacific time. Um, yeah, so mark that down. That's uh, that's this coming Wednesday, September second. I can't believe we're in September already, and uh, and going to try to do these more regularly. Um, a couple of quick reasons why I hadn't been doing them over the summer, mainly um, on the vineyard. The signal is very sort of sketchy, the uh, internet connection rather. So I, you know, I didn't even really want to try to get too into it down there. I did one, if you might remember, I did a Ringo. Um, broadcast on Ringo's birthday, his 80th birthday. But um, yeah, I just figured I'd wait till I get back here pretty much. And as you can see, I'm moving. We're moving house. Um, all of my drum sets, except for one, are in the new place, which is very exciting too. Um, and uh, in the coming weeks, I'll be doing stuff there. So anyway, uh, that's my 62 Gretsch round badge kit right there. Pretty sweet, huh? All right. Anyway, you guys are waiting for Steve, so I'm going to bring him on in. Please give a big hand for Steve Smith. Let's try it again. Please give a big hand for Steve. Hope I didn't lose him. Here he comes. Smith. Hello, Johnny. Hi, Stevie. It's good to see you. Yeah. Looking Looking good. Looking fit as a fiddle, as usual. <laughs> fit as a fiddle. From your groovy well, pad. Yeah. yeah. I'm uh, happy to be spending the whole summer in upstate New York. Awesome. Very nice place to be right now. Yeah. Yep. Especially if, if the people watching this, uh, which we have a lot, by the way, Steve, um, if they could see your house, they'd really know how sweet it is to be spending time up there. But I, well, you can, we don't want to. This is pretty much the whole thing. I'm in the kitchen. Yeah. 
and then there's the dining room <laughs> and then the fireplace and then the living room. Well, it's you know, a little, it's just a little house on a lake, you know, so yeah. it's not, not a, not a big place or anything. 950 square foot footprint. You know, from the pictures from the outside, I, I seriously thought it was much bigger. I really did. I thought it was. I mean, twice downstairs, we had to build on the same footprint because it's so close to the water. Yeah. You know, of what was here before. And uh, we did put a, sm a small second story on, but it's comfortable for Diane and I. Yeah. And then there's enough room across it. To have a, there's a garage and uh, above the garage is an, an apartment. And so, of course, when the kids and grandkids come, they can hang there. And, and that's where I have my practice room here. Cool. Because, yeah. you know, what one of the things I've been doing while sheltering and you know and and staying off tour is putting together videos each week from the practice room yeah and uh, i started out in southern oregon where we you know we also live in southern oregon started out in my practice room there and then changed locations to the practice room here so that's why some people might look and they go what does he practice in every room of the house or something because the one here you know, it's like beds and bunk beds and, you know, it's set up for, for kids and grandkids. So, yeah, but I got my drums and a practice kit in there and I go and and I bug the neighbors for a couple hours every day. <laughs> <laughs> I know how that goes. Yeah. But, you're hey, doing well, the same thing, right? You're, you're yeah. bugging the neighbors, too. I seriously, you know, and, we, you know, we live in this condo and. uh right like a townhouse setup, and uh, my stuff is all up in the third floor. I was just saying before I brought you out that I've moved all my drum sets except for just the one, this one Gretsch kit. And uh, my neighbors are so great. I mean, they, you know, I'll, I'll come out after playing for like an hour or something and I'll see them out outside and I'll say, I hope that wasn't a bummer, you know, like, no, no, it was, you know, we can hardly hear it. And, you know, it's not, we love it. And, and, and uh, yeah, so I have to say my neighbor's been, pretty cool too yeah i appreciate that so yeah that's that's a that's a big plus absolutely plus yeah, i mean, you know, I mean when, when i was um of course first growing up and practicing i started out in my bedroom and then i ended up in the basement but that seemed to like rattle the whole house yes <laughs> so my dad had a tool shed in the backyard so i ended up in the tool shed yeah I but want to hear about that too. Away from the house, and that worked out. That worked out pretty good. Well, I'm gonna. I, I made a note of that tool shed, Steve, because I remember you telling me about that years ago. And that um, I'm gonna jump ahead because I made a couple little notes here. But when you were at Berkeley, right, and you had met Vinny there, you met Vinny at school, and you guys used to come back and practice in your tool shed, right? Yeah. Well, actually, we or play did some of that, but mostly. When we practiced, it was in my parents' base basement in Chatham. Oh, okay. On the Cape. Yep. So, so how we met is actually we didn't meet at Berkeley. We met in Brownsville, Pennsylvania. So it was I was on tour with Lynn Bibiano. This it was uh, who's a fantastic trumpet player, mainly a lead trumpet player, and he played with Buddy and Maynard, and then he had his own band in 74, and I became the drummer in that group. 
And yep. we did some touring in the summer months. And, and that summer we played in Brownsville, Pennsylvania in a big barn, you know, some kind of barn that had concerts. And after the gig, Vinny came up and just said hello and introduced himself. And he was, you know, a kid just out of high school. Yeah, and he was 18. I'm yeah. going to Berkeley next year. I heard you're at Berkeley. And then so then that must have been July or something, you know. So then September, I, I went back to school and I was in my must have been my third year. Yeah. You know, third year of Berkeley, because I'm two years older than Vinny. And then he he came in as a freshman. So then we that's how you know we met and then and then compared notes of we were both studying with Gary Chafee. And then we compared notes and we were basically studying a lot of the same material. So we practice together, but we had so much fun doing that. Um, we went to Gary and ended up taking a group lesson. So instead of each having a 30 minute lesson, we had an hour lesson together. Oh, cool. Yeah. And, and, and then I don't remember the reason, but Vinny's mother moved from the Pittsburgh area where they grew up, where he grew up yeah. and she, and she moved to Hyannis on the Cape. Right. So, so of course he was he was there too, and my parents have a house in Chatham, so we would just hang. I found recently found some pictures of he and I hanging out in my parents' basement. Oh, I'd love to see that. Never been. I sent them to him on his 60th birthday. <laughs> I don't think they've seen the light of day since since that. Oh, that's great. That's yeah, great. pretty funny. Isn't and, and that you told me this story too. I think you, I don't know if it was Vinny or you, I think it was you told me that when you met him that time in, in Pennsylvania, that he actually like helped you pack up your drums. Like, like you guys, he's like, can I, can I help you pack up your I mean, stuff? I was my own roadie, you know, it yeah, was, yeah, I was so cool. Kid, you know, I was like 19 and he was about 17 and, and yeah. I was just a kid, you know, packing up my drums and, he gave me a hand packing him up, <laughs> putting him on the bus. And the bus in those days was like a greyhound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just literally a greyhound bus with 14 guys and in the drums underneath the bus, you know. So it was wow. uh, some, those were great times and essential for learning and growing and, and getting music developing musicianship and getting yeah. experience playing live gigs yeah. so absolutely yeah a, a, fr a friend of mine uh david foster used to work for the band beaver brown um from the new england area asked asked me to ask you about his ask him about his normandy ask about his normandy okay normandy sound oh Normandy Sound. Okay, yeah, of course. I think that's what it means, right? It was a recording studio in um, Rhode Island. Uh, Rhode Island, okay. And I did the first two Vital Information records there. Got it. Okay. So, so there was, um, in well, in the early earliest incarnations of Vital Information, Tim Landers was the bass player. And yep. Tim's from Brockton. And he had done some recording you know, around the New England area and knew about Normandy sound. And 
And so he recommended that that would be a good place for us to make that first vital information record. We ended up making two, the first two records there. And it was, it was a very good studio, a great engineer named Phil Green. And, yeah. and one of the things that made it a good studio for us is it, it had an apartment with, <laughs> I think, with bunk beds. And, you know, so we could just live there. We yeah. could live yeah. there for like a couple of weeks and make the record. Perfect. So, yeah. so that, so that record was um, made in 1983. I was, wow. I had just finished the frontiers tour with journey. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so we did the album, we did escape. Then we did frontiers. We did a big tour and then um, maybe I'm getting the timing of it wrong. No, you know what? I did the record, I think, before the Frontiers tour, but it, I did the album and then did a journey tour and then did a vital information tour, my very first one. Anyway, so we went, I think it was in January 1983. I'd have to look at the credits, but, and, uh, and it was in, you know, it was a great lineup because Tim played bass. He and I had known each other since we were high school students. Wow. Yeah. Uh, we were both playing in the Bridgewater State College big band as as we got recruited to the college big band as high school students, along with the sax player, Dave Wolcheski, and he was the sax player in the first incarnation. And then we had Dean Brown on guitar and Mike Stern on guitar. Yeah, yeah. We all, you know, lived in <laughs> in this apartment in Nor- at Normandy Sound and, and wow. made made the one record, then I did a journey tour, then the record came out in the fall, and then I did a vital information tour. And then right after that tour, we went right back to the studio to make another record, because we had yeah. written enough music while we were on tour. So, yeah. Crazy times. And and you squeezed in some Zildjian days too, I remember in, in uh, 83, oh, right. that was when all that started in happening. In Chicago, the one, well, we did the one in Boston yep. with vital information. Yep. And and that was a pretty great lineup of drummers, including uh, Steve Gadd and and, and Vinny, uh, Vinny, Larry London, yep, Louis Belson. McDonald played with Steve. That's right. Yep. Percussion, and then and Peter Erskine, his band played uh, with and Vital Information played, and he had a really great band. It was very close to the Steps Ahead lineup. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Like he had Will Lee and Don Grolnick and. And, uh, you know, so that was pretty great. And then, uh, then I squeezed in, I remember Vinny said one really funny thing at that Zilton day, and I don't know if it's on film, but he said he was so nervous. He'd rather be standing naked in the middle of the San Diego freeway yes. than in that clinic. Do you remember that? I remember it. Absolutely. I do. I remember it. Yes. Yeah. It was like one of those lines you never forget. It was so yeah. funny. And and it was, yeah. you know, it was him like being so honest, like <laughs> I, I, I'd rather be standing on the San Diego freeway naked. Like, yeah. oh God. Yeah. That was a great day. That was it. And I remember for me, and I think for a lot of people, Larry London was the big surprise when he came right. out. First guy out. And uh, <clears throat> I'd never heard of him. And and then, you know, I, I'd heard his credits and I went, OK, so I've heard him on a lot of records, obviously. And then when when he played, it was like, wow, 
super chops, like great groove and amazing chops. And that's, yeah, yeah. I don't think anyone expected that. Yeah, that was, that was great. Um, well, you know, and, and, and there's another Zildjian day that I, I did the Zildjian day in the afternoon and then played a gig at the Rosemont horizon in Chicago with journey, like right after Vic just posted that on Facebook the other day on your birthday and, um, oh, cool. happy belated birthday, everybody. In fact, um, I mean, to Steve, to everybody should know it was your birthday. I think they know that. But he he posted a picture, and uh, and I think he commented on that, the Zildjian day that you did in the, during the day. And, and Lauren Wheaton also said, we must have played a couple of nights there for Steve to have done something during the day. And then that's true. That's yeah, a he said. Because, yeah, we would play two or three nights some, at some of these places. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I, and I think we've already sort of touched on it, but for people watching, um, if you didn't pick up on this, so Steve was born in Whitman, Massachusetts, which is not far from where I am right now here on the South shore of Boston and, right. uh, and grew up about and eight it's just, miles from the Zildjian factory. In fact. Right. Right. One time I figured that I just looked it up. It's pretty damn close. Pretty damn close. Yeah. Pretty damn close. I think they used to advertise it that you were like a mile away. You grew up a mile mile from the factory they you know they take those kinds of liberties steve i can't (laughs) (laughs) and actually just to be really you know really super clear i I was born at the in the brockton hospital and then lived in rockland for two years and you were a mile from children that's even closer to and then then my parents when i was two they they moved to whitman Okay. So, that's good. See, that's new information. That's yeah. vital information, in fact. It is vital. Um, <laughs> and, you know, technically, Zildjian's address is really in Rockland. They have a Norwell really? zip code, but they're really... See, they weren't exaggerating. No, they weren't. <laughs> you really were a mile away. Yeah. Um, For two years, anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, and and so you were, you, you were part of, like, a scene when you grew up. Like, I remember you telling me that you knew Bobby Chenard and, and I, I knew Bobby. He was the drummer, everybody. If you don't know who Bobby was, rest his soul, he played in Billy Squire's band. Right. And he grew up in Brockton, Mass., which was next door to Whitman. And you guys were sort of rival drummers, right? In a, in a funny kind of way. Like, I guess you could, yeah, something like that. But I like mean, when you're kids, the way you're rivals. Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay, here's how he was in a band called Utopia. Not related to Todd Rundgren. Yes, yeah. it was just it was a and it was a horn band. So it was a band, and there were you know that that was a thing in those days, like Chicago. Yeah, yeah. You know, and of course, happy birthday to Danny Seraphin. That's right, Danny's like, birthday yesterday. Yesterday was his birthday, and yeah. a lot of you know. So Utopia was a cool band because they had horns. And, and so they would play, you know, that kind of blood, sweat and tears in Chicago. And, and what I really remember that, that Bobby Chouinard played that he excelled at was Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah. You know, like sing a simple song. Yeah. You know, he was super funky and groovy and, most people know him as like a more Bonham kind of a player. And he, and he was, but he was well suited for that, that kind of playing. So he was, and so they played at my high school dances. So I, you know, I was, I would probably a senior in high school, like 1971, 1972. And, 
and Utopia with Bobby Chouinard would be playing at the dance. So, you know, yeah. I was just standing in front of the band watching the band. And there was one one of the guys, a trumpet player. Did you fold your arms too? Did you do this? Is what? Did you fold your yeah. arms and kind of look? <laughs> Say, I can do that. No. There was a guy from my high school band in the band. Paul Huska was a trumpet player and he was in the band. So he, he was kind of a you know, like a, a rock star in our school because he was in the utopia and then they played the dances. And, oh yeah. And, uh, you know, he was, he was cool. And, and I, you know, I just enjoyed hearing him play. And then I lost, you know, I, I didn't, we casually met and knew each other. And, um, but then again, I don't remember the exact year, early eighties, I get a knock on the door my holiday Inn door. <laughs> and it was Bobby Chenard with a pack of cigarettes and a can of Coke. And he just, hey, Steve, <laughs> we're on tour together. And, he, and then we just hung out, you know. And so, so uh, Billy Squire opened a bunch of gigs, you know, a bunch oh, of shows. Oh, that's so, that's so cool. So, yeah, so we reconnected in the early 80s and, you know, toured together and hung out and had some good times. He's a great guy. He was a, he was a sweetheart, man. He was, yeah. I, I'll just tell you a quick story. I, I didn't really meet him, but the first time I saw him play was in 1974. He was in a band called Orphan. You, you might oh, remember, remember these guys. Yeah. They were sort of like a, yeah, like a sort of a country rock. Um, and my sister's ex-husband's brother-in-law, this guy named Dean Adrian was in the band. So I was like 13 going on 14. They took me to a club to see him. Um, they had a record out, more more right. orphan than not, and um, and Bobby blew my mind because he was he definitely had by that time he had kind of developed into more of a flashy drummer and um, it, you know I just you know it was the first time I'd been in a club and saw like a live band and it was amazing and I told him that story years later and he it, it blew his mind he's like I, you I can't believe it you know it was <clears throat> so funny too much yeah yeah. yeah. So and and so you and so you played in some local bands around like around the South Shore or Yeah, like when I so during my high school years, I did a little bit of everything. And 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 I got I got into the musicians union and and as as a re, and so then I could do gigs. For instance, there was a there was a, a for lack of a better description, like a circus band, like a concert band. And yeah. the band used to play in the gazebos in the, in like in the Whitman town park or the Abington town park, you know, and, and you have to wear somewhat of a uniform. And I played snare drum and sometimes bass drum, you know, like just mm -hmm. standing up playing the snare drum or and reading music. And so that was, you know, 1971, 72, still in high school. And then immediately after high school, I still did some of those. There's actually a recording. I have a record of one of those. And um, and so I was doing that. I was playing in the Bridgewater State College big band. So that was that was one of my favorite things to do. I love big band and would go see Buddy Rich when I could. Yeah, yeah. And all the big bands and actually. But I also played in some rock bands too. And I was in a band called Clyde. 
<laughs> with some wow. good local rock players. And yeah. I think you're based in Hingham. Like the main, the main songwriter, I, his name was Peter Mall. He played keyboards and he lived in Hingham. So we'd go and rehearse. So we'd rehearse in Rockland, the guitar player and, and the singer lived in Rockland. So, and we did Battle of the Bands and we'd play some dances and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And um, regular kind of stuff that was happening at that time. And there was like and, bands and I, everywhere. I, I played rock like uh, just kind of intuitively. My focus was on jazz and big band. But I played rock and it just, it was a natural thing to do. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like a stretch and I didn't say study it or anything. You know, my studies yeah. were more like jazz oriented. Yeah. So, so what I would, what I say about that and from retrospect, it's, it's more or less the, the archetype of the, the drummers from that time, like, you know, like, Mitch Mitchell or Ginger Baker, those guys that grew up with jazz drummers as their favorite drummers. And if yep. they took lessons, which most of them did, it's probably a jazz oriented teacher because yep. in those days there was no such thing as a rock teacher. Right. Right. It right. was just like jazz. If you were a jazz, if you were a drum teacher, you were essentially a, like a rudimentally trained drummer or a jazz trained or some kind of combination of both, which my teacher, yeah. Billy Flanagan, was somewhere in the middle, you know, like knew all the rudiments and taught the rudiments, but had played in big bands and and uh, and was teaching in that style. So, so that's why, in a way, those, you know, myself and those early drummers, they sound so jazzy, yeah. jazz-oriented, yeah. you know, because that was the kind of the orientation, but then you played the music that you grew up in the time that you're living, you know, you play that music. And so it comes out sounding like, like it sounds. Yeah. And, yep. and, and the other thing for me, like, um, is, well, then as soon as I got to Berkeley in 72, that's, that's when I really opened up and got hip to small group jazz. And like, I was really into big band, but I wasn't, I hadn't listened to like John Coltrane and Miles Davis with Tony Williams. And so I got exposed to that from the yeah. teachers and from the other students when I went to Berkeley. And then of course the front line of what was going on in jazz at that time was fusion. Yeah. Well, later it became yeah. fusion and what we called at the time, just jazz, jazz rock. Mm -hmm. Jazz and rock. Yeah. We go see Tony Williams at um, the jazz workshop or I saw Billy Cobb at Paul's Mall, you know, the two clubs, the main two clubs yeah. in Boston. And yeah. so all of that, you know, influence came into my playing. But anyway, you were talking about just playing local gigs. And yeah, so I was playing like a little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and even I was playing like before I had my driver's license, like my, my parents would drive me around to rehearsals and you know, it's a story that's been told before, but it's a yeah. It's, no, I'm I, fortunate that we had real supportive parents that did that, and and uh, and then we'd have band practices at my house. Yeah. Okay, my first band <laughs> was called the Roadrunners, and we we played music from Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. Cool. Yeah. Probably like late '60s, early '70s. Uh, yeah, '68. Yeah, I think 68. Like there's a picture of me 
playing with that with that group and you know we played you know taste of honey and yeah and you know all those all those and i even my parents even took me into boston garden to see her valpert and i remember the year it was 1966 because the opening act was sergio mendez in brazil 66 wow man <laughs> And yeah, that was, of course, probably the first time I went to to Boston Garden. Yeah, you know, so so I you know I had a lot of different music that I liked as a kid. All kinds. Yeah, of different. I just think it's you know I I mean I, a, a lot of this stuff I really never asked you. I never we never really talked about it, and I sort of wondered. I was thinking about it over the last couple of days. Like, I kind of know your story from like John Luke Ponty onward you know like well berkeley and then you left berkeley to to you got the gig playing with john luke ponty and then you right. left berkeley right. yep and you did that for about a year or so i did it for 13 months yeah just yeah. a little over a year yes yeah and then so and then and not not to skip over that but so when you joined journey had ainsley was ainsley dismissed or did he leave the band himself I, uh, I mean, you know, they. And did you audition? Okay. No, I didn't audition, but, but okay. Um, I, I had played w- with Ronnie Montrose. Right. Just, I mean, to, to put the pieces together, like, you know, I, I auditioned for Jean-Luc Ponty and my, I was in my seventh semester at Berkeley and it had pretty much just started. It was like October, I think of, 1976 and uh, Jeff Berlin who was a bass player buddy of mine that I played with a lot he was in New York he had left Berkeley and lived was living in New York and Ponty asked Jeff to uh, to help him audition drummers so oh, okay. so the drummer that was in John uh, Jean-Luc's band right before me was Mark Cranny Oh, okay. And, and Mark, so Mark Cranny did an album with John Luke called Imaginary Voyage. And they were getting ready to do the tour. And 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 Mark up and quit like right before the tour. And he joined uh, Tommy Boland's band. Yes. Which was ill-fated because Tommy Boland died shortly after that. But John Luke needed a replacement for Mark Cranny. And so he had he had cattle call auditions in L.A. and New York. And I got in on the New York auditions because of my buddy, Jeff Berlin, who was playing bass at the audition. So I drove down to New York and did the audition and got the gig. And, you know, it was like seven or eight drummers in the hallway. And and I'd say I got the gig for, you know, a couple of reasons. One, I could read music so I could sight read his music. I sight read Imaginary Voyage no mistakes. And it's just pretty hard, you know, it's not yeah. like super easy, but I was, you know, I could read and I could play in odd time signatures and, and, you know, that wasn't totally unusual in those days, but it was enough that it got my foot in the door. So, so, you know, then I had the tough sell to convince my parents <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that I was going to quit school. And like you're that close to graduating. Yeah. But I did, you know, so I did. And it turned out to be a good decision. And then I ended up, you know, that that was like October, November, December of 76. 
then into 77, you know, we toured. And then I made the, the album called Enigmatic Ocean in the, in the summer of 77. And then by the end of that year, Jean-Luc wanted to change and he let me go and Daryl Sturmer and Jamie Glazer. And oh, then okay. he, he later called us all back, but, he, you know, he, he liked yeah. to change it up. And then Casey Shirell came in on yep. drops right after me. Yep. But, but, and so then I moved to L.A., because I was still living in Boston while I actually I was living at my parents' house, you know, because yeah. I had an apartment in Boston, but I was on the road so much I gave it up and just went back to Whitman. And then David Wilczewski and I drove to LA in 1978, January 1978. And it took us a long time to get there because it was a big blizzard pretty much across oh, the whole. Right, of course. Yeah. And then uh and yeah. then I started doing auditions. I ended up getting a gig with Ronnie Montrose who was the rock guitar player and of the band Montrose, but it was an instrumental yeah. rock group, him playing instrumental rock. And, and he was the, that group was the opening act for journey on a three month tour. So, so that's how I met the guys in journey. So in a way it served as an audition, so to speak, because yeah. we were, you know, we'd be hanging out and, and uh, I'd hear them play every night and they'd hear me play every night. The opening act was Van Halen. Wow! <laughs> it, was, it was Journey's first tour, Steve Perry's first tour. They they had the music from Infinity, and and then they played some of the more instrumental stuff because yeah. you know they were. It was their first headline tour, but but the the interesting juxtaposition was we were playing like fifteen hundred seat theaters and two thousand seat theaters, which were the same theaters I was playing with Jean Luc Ponty. So yeah. In a way, that's how popular fusion was in those days. Yeah. But that's where Journey started as a headliner because they had done, they had been together about five years, but mainly as an opening act. Right. Right. So this was their first headline tour. And uh, basically, at the end of that tour, they asked me to join the band. They wanted to change. Steve Perry wanted a different kind of group in, in the band. And, and uh, they could see that somehow I had a rock approach and I was playing like more like fusion drums with Ronnie Montrose. You know, it was pretty, it was a continuation of what I did with Jean-Luc. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he, he was, he was sort of modeling himself after Jeff Beck. Ronnie was in, in, yeah. in that yeah. period. So he needed like a fusion type of drum. Like he said to me, he wanted a Simon Phillips kind of drummer, you know? Yeah, in a yep. I can, yep. Yeah, so, you know, so so that was that was the concept, but somehow those, the you know, the guys in Journey could see that I could discipline myself to play that music, you yeah. know, and yeah. had, had more, let's say of an R&B-ish, underlying group yeah which yeah. is what steve perry was looking for to support his vocal style which is very gospel r&b oriented coming out of like jackie wilson and sam cook yeah so somehow like that's in a way the magic to me of the the journey sound is it you know puts together rock instrumental virtuosity with kind of an r&b underlying pulse with that gospel bluesy R&B vocal on top. So 
Yeah. So that's the, and so yeah, they let Ainsley go. Yeah. I I, I thought yeah, I thought that's right. And I think he you know, you know Ainsley, he's <clears throat> he's as, you know, open and well, honest as the, yeah. Here here's the thing about Ainsley, it's like when I did an interview with him after we were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. And and I I said to the interviewer, look, I'm really happy to be here. And this came out of nowhere. And I'm very pleased to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But this guy really deserves to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Pointing to Ainsley. I mean, because he actually played with Jimi Hendrix. You know, he was one of the drummers that auditioned for Hendrix. And it came down to him and Mitch Mitchell. And that's in Mitch Mitchell's autobiography. And and then, you know, he played with John Mayall and then he played with David Bowie and he played with Frank Zappa and then Journey. And then after Journey, Jefferson Starship. Right. And uh, White White, White Snake. Yeah. I mean, you know, so the guy has the chops and and uh, and a great career, really great career. Really great. Really great. Um, I was I was just going to say so. So. You joined Journey in 78. Yeah. And the, the first record you made with them came out in 80? No. It was Evolution. Evolution. Okay. Yeah. Maybe that would have been 79. 79. Okay. Yeah. That has any way you want it. And no, 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 no. That's the, the one like hit was Love and Touch and the Squeezing. Oh, okay. I thought they were on the same record. Okay. Those are, those oh. are separate albums. Okay. Yeah. So that's Evolution. And then Departure was the next album, and that has any way you want it on it. Okay. And that was a year later. That was probably 80. Then. Yeah. Yeah, we were making a record a year. You know, we, yeah, yeah. we were for a long time, like, seemed like nine months out of a year. And then we'd spend three months making a record and then go back on tour. Yeah. What a cycle. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's it what was, did that. It was too much. In yeah. retro, it was like too, it was just too much, you know, but it was what bands did in those days. Yeah. 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 Well, we should, we should, um, oh, good. We're, we're good for time too. I don't, I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, cause you know, I could have you talking here all day, but sure. Um, but I'm going to jump ahead just for one second because is, is Bob going to join us, Johnny? He is going to join us. He's in the waiting room. So I'm going to bring him on in a few minutes. Oh, yeah. He's in the waiting There's room. There's another Herb Alpert. brass fan. Oh, Rob is. I didn't realize that he's probably, I hope he's watching this and he's, he's <laughs> checking it out. By the way, Jeff Hamilton is watching. Hear. I couldn't hear from the, from the waiting room. I couldn't hear what was going on. Well, if he's if he's on Facebook, he's able to he's oh. able to see it and watch it. Um, but Jeff Hamilton is watching, and I said hello to Jeff. Hey, hi, hi to Jeff. He just had a birthday too. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Therese, Therese Demuzio. Oh, hello, Therese. The daughter of of the one and only Lenny Demuzio, who who Steve and I were talking about uh, off camera. Right. Because you have to talk about Lenny off camera. You can't talk about him on the camera. <laughs> <laughs> we'll tell some Lenny stories too, but I was just going to say, so, so this brings us to 1981 escape. The one that just blew everything. Oh, no, then it was cap- so then it was captured. Captured. Okay. Yeah. Captured. And what was that also in 81? No. 
No. It, three records came out in 1980, and I, I, it, I'm pretty wow. sure it was Departure, uh, Captured, and then we did this pretty cool record called Dream After Dream that was for a Japanese movie. And we went into the studio in Japan and just watched this movie and, and made up some music. Wow. Okay. I'm, I'm embarrassed. To, I thought yeah, I knew I all this not stuff. Not many people know about that record. It's pretty obscure. But it's kind of cool. It's a yeah, bet it is. record. So all those records came out in 1980, three of them. And then 1981 is when Escape, we recorded and Escape came out. Gotcha. Okay. And Peter Erskine, by the way, is watching too. Hey, Peter. So got to be on our best behavior right now. So Peter remembers me from, you know, from high school days when I'd go see Stan Kenton's band. And then I went to the Stan Kenton camp for a week where he was teaching. And That's pretty, yeah. And he was 18 and I was 18. Yeah. How about that? I know. And, but he was way, way ahead of me. You know, his musicianship was really highly developed at a very young age from a, a lot of it from going to those camps, according to, you know, talking to him, he went to those camps when he was very young. Right. Right. But it's, I think it's just so cool that the roots to you and, and Pete and like Vinny go back and Casey go back that far. You know, it's just, I, I've always loved that, that. Well, and the other drummer, there was a couple other classmates. We had John Robinson, Jr. Of course. Jr. Yeah. Yeah. He was there. Kenwood Denard. You know, there was, and then there was, there was some drummers that never became like household names. It was, you know, um, good, good players, but, you know, not everyone became, let's say, well-known, but, but all, a lot of very good musicians. Yeah. Yeah. It was a drummer named Doug Florence, who I'm still in touch with, Yeah, yeah. Who, who is really, we all looked up to, he was such a, such a great player and he modeled himself in those days after Dave Garibaldi so he really sounded very much like like how Dave sounded in those days yeah which was you know super advanced drumming like Dave just developed yeah. a style that was so beautiful based on history and tradition like you know the James Brown Brown drummers and Bernard Purdy and you know that kind of background but then had this bay area influence and and you know like he and mike clark shared some interesting vocabulary and there was this whole scene that was happening there before i got to the bay area there was this scene but i'd you know dave was a huge influence because of his yeah. really beautiful playing that he came up with in those early years I was going to say, I mean, when I when I finally got hip to his playing Tower of Power, I, it was like so beyond my limited vocabulary at that point in my life. I just could just I, I couldn't I loved it. And I couldn't Im imagine like process, you know, playing it because it was just so off my sort of, you know, rock background, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It was all that all those little inside little things that he plays. I mean, it still plays so beautifully, you know, he's, he does. Yeah. He does. Monster yeah. player. Well, should we, should we jump ahead to the Charlie Watts story? Because it sort of relates to escape. What, what, that's okay. What, what do you want to, you brought Charlie to see, to see my group jazz legacy. Jazz legacy. Okay. 
Yep. Yeah. And so Jazz Legacy was a band that evolved out of Buddies Buddies. Yeah. You know, so Buddies Buddies being being a group that we played a lot of the music, well, the music associated with Buddy Rich, but with a small group. And and then that group turned into Jazz Legacy. And the concept of Jazz Legacy was to play music associated with a lot of the drummers that I, jazz drummers that I loved listening to. Right. So, you know, we did some Buddy Rich music, but we did uh, like music that Philly Joe Jones played on, you know, like that he played with Miles or Art Blake, music that Art Blakey played or some music that Tony Williams played and Tony composed or Elvin played or that Elvin composed. So it was a super fun band for me as a drummer. And it was a great band with Andy Fusco on alto, Walt Weisskopf on tenor, Baron Brown on bass and Mark Soskin on yeah. on piano. And we, we were touring and we were playing at Regatta Bar, right? Exactly. Yep. And can you, I, can I, can I set it up a little bit? Can I just set yeah, it up for one second? So, and then I'm going to let you tell the story because it's, it's one of my favorite stories. And I want to say hi to the guitar player in my band, Paul Gianelli, um, who's watching, who's, you met, when I brought the band to see you a couple of years ago in Worcester, oh, right. uh, Grand Theft Audio, my, my old buddy. So he's, he's enjoying this. But anyway, so I'll just quickly back up. So I was on my way home from the Modern Drummer Festival on the train, and I got a phone call from Charlie. And this was on the Monday after the weekend festival in New Jersey. And Charlie says, um, you know, we're rehearsing in Boston tonight. Um, would you like to come? And they were rehearsing at Aganis Arena, which is um, part of Boston University like a 5,000 seat arena that they had rented out. So, and I'd gone to a rehearsal years before at the Boston garden. So I kind of knew the drill and I said, sure, I'd love to go. And I, I got home and I basically just ran back out to the rehearsal. And while I was there, it was the night before you were playing at the regatta bar. So I said to him, um, tomorrow night, I'm going to see this. And they were playing two nights later at Gillette stadium. So this was like the Monday night they were rehearsing night off Tuesday. And then the gig, their gig Wednesday. So I said, tomorrow night, um, Steve Smith is going to be in Boston with his band jazz legacy. And, and, uh, and I, I, and I said, it's, it's this band that pays tribute to all these great drummers, buddy, rich, Elvin Jones, uh, Roy Haynes, Tony Williams. And, uh, and he's, you know, he's very interested. And I said, it's at the same club. I took you to see Brian blade and Joshua Redman at the regatta bar. And he said, yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested. He said, can I bring Tim Reese, who's the sax player in the Stones, right. who I think you know, and he was Greg Bissonette's roommate from North Texas State. So I meet Tim. And of course, we knew, he knew all the same people. So, and he knew who you were, but he had never seen you play. He said, oh, I've, I've, I said something about, you know, Steve Smith. He said, well, I've heard of him, but I, I, I'm, I'm not really familiar. And I said, well, I really think you'll love this, you know. So anyway, fast forward to the gig shows up, we get it, you know, we're sitting at a table and I just want to tell everybody, cause you won't say this. Um, Steve is amazing every single time you see him, but on this particular night, I don't know, you were just like the, the heavens opened up and you were <clears throat> everything you went for. And then some other things you were getting and not showing off, but just like, it was just, it was so on fire, the show. But didn't we, so we had just played at the Modern Drummer Festival. Did you play at MD Fest? Okay, I didn't remember 2006, that. 2006, was it? Yes. 2000? It was yeah. 2006. Yeah. Oh, okay. And Danny played and that year too, I think. And Hudson filmed it. And that's, you know, that's 
Okay. All right. That, that band is, is in my DVD drum legacy standing on the shoulders of giants. But so we were on tour and we were doing a lot of gigs. So, yeah. you know, so we were in, in it, you know, we were deep yeah. into it. So, yeah. So that it would make sense that we were playing at a high level and the music was really happening. Really happening. Yeah. And, and Charlie was sitting, who's not a, not a guy that's very animated sitting in a seat, just like shaking his head and smiling, going like, yeah. wow. You know, like it was, it was so funny to watch. So, so do you want to tell the rest of the story? You want no, to- so you're saying so like backstage. So you brought him back afterwards. Yes. And, and, you know, and I, <laughs> I met him and I, well, I'm not sure exactly how you want to tell the story, but he said, he said to me, cause I, I don't remember how it all came out, but I told him that I met him at JFK stadium. Yeah. Right. Yes. He said, well, he said, it's great to meet you. And you said, well, we've actually met before. Right. Because Journey opened for the Stones in 81 at JFK Stadium in Philadelphia. Yes. And uh, he and Bill Wyman were came to our trailer to say hello and introduce themselves. They were very, very nice. And uh, I told him that. And and then (laughs) that's when he said what you you were in journey i but didn't you tell the part though where you said where steve perry said we want to thank you for making escape number one in the country did i tell him that you did and and, because and we got booed real bad really got bad. Booed. and and he apologized he said i'm so sorry yeah. and and then he said you were in journey <laughs> right. and, you, and you went yeah oh and then his next question was were you that good that were you this good then? Yeah, yeah. Right? And it's, I said, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the yeah. It was it was just a, a moment in time that I'll never forget because he was Classic. doubly like just yeah, he was floored. He's like, wait a minute, you were in, like he just couldn't believe that the same guy that was that he had seen, you know. Yeah. So that's funny. No, that and and so then you know that then my association with him continued because uh, we we live in in New York, also right across the street from the Beacon Theater. Yes. Yeah. At 70, 74th and Broadway, and and Diane and I were walking around the Beacon Theater, and there was all these Rolling Stones road cases. Yeah. There was nobody playing there. <laughs> so I called you. Yeah. And I said, I think the stones might be inside. Can you hook me up? Right. And you called Charlie's tech. Or I called Charlie's tech. Yeah. Yeah. And they came to the side door, opened the door, and we went in and watched the stones rehearse in an absolutely empty beacons theater. It was like that four or five people in the audience, including <laughs> Diana. <laughs> and then and then Charlie came out and said hello. And this is right after, not long after that. Yeah, that's and right. Then, yep. And then invited us to stay the next night where they were recording uh, what became the movie Shine a Light. Right. That's right. Yep. And so we went to that show and it was an amazing show. And then I don't know when a year later he called me up and invited me to the premiere of 
the movie. Yes. And unfortunately, I was in Oregon and he was that was in New York. And so and he yeah. didn't give me any warning. <laughs> so it was like it's happening tomorrow. So but then it turns out then he came to see Vital Information when I played at uh, Ronnie Scott's in London. He came came to the show and we hung That's out. Great. He got to, you know, saw me in a, a totally different kind of, you know, more fusion environment. And then the last my last encounter with him is I was playing with Vital Information just a few years ago. I mean, I don't not that long ago in Minneapolis at the Dakota. Yeah. A really, yep. uh, beautiful club in Minneapolis. And and I had gotten there the day before I was going to play. And Tim Reese had put together a gig at the Dakota. Right. And Tim called, got, got a hold of me in my hotel room. And he said, look, if you come down to the gig, Charlie will come down. And I really want Charlie to come down, but you have to come down. And then and it was his birthday. And it was oh, Charlie's right. birthday. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I said, yeah, of course I'll come down. So. So they sent a car over for me and I went to the Dakota and then, and, and Lowell who runs the Dakota, he says, well, I'm going to put you in Prince's booth. So it was this like little private booth <laughs> in a balcony above. Uh, and we sat and, you know, hung out for the night, listened to the music. And then we both sat in. Oh, he that's played so cool. I played a tune with Tim's band. Yep. So that was super fun. That was really, really fun. So, yeah. So thanks for hooking us up. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah. You kidding? Two of my heroes. And and you, I think you sent me a picture. I was on a, on a cruise. I think I was in, I, I remember you sent me a picture of you and Charlie sitting together right. and you said, look, who, look who I'm with her. So you texted it or emailed it. And I was in like St. Petersburg, Russia on this ocean <laughs> nor, yeah, cruise or something. And I'm like, Oh man, you know, and I, I think it was 2015 because they were on tour that summer and I saw him like right. in July of that year or something, but right. Right. But anyway. Yeah. yeah that, that's what a, a, what a beautiful man. What a gentleman, of yeah. course, a great, great drummer and, and just is the heartbeat of that band. Yeah. You know, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, so he's all, always a pleasure to spend some time with yeah, he sure is. He's he's special. Um, I was going to bring Rob in, our friend Rob Wallace, the uh, owner of Hudson Music. And and we'll bring Rob in in just a minute. I mean, there's other stuff, too, I wanted to talk about, but I know it's we're getting up to be about an hour. Um, I was going to have you maybe tell a, a Buddy story. I'm assuming you must have met Buddy at least a couple of times in your... Actually, no. I, I did meet him. But it was um, really brief, and there was it was just like shaking hands and having a photo taken. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, well, and I, just, it's, I can tell you, like the first time I met him, and it was in 1968. And my parents brought me to the Boston Globe Jazz Festival, and wow. and my mom just like you know, and I was in junior high school. And she just says, let's go back and meet him and get his autograph. And I was like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> but she did it. She did it. Yeah. I don't know how, but, and he was, I just remembered he was nice and signed an autograph. And then, the, then the only other time I met him, I was on tour, that journey tour I was talking about was, but I was playing with Ronnie Montrose. Yeah. Yep. 
And and I did my like first drum clinic for strings and things in Memphis. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember those guys. Yeah, and Big Dave Patrick. Yes. Was, who now lives in Santa Cruz, but Big Dave Patrick was was the head of the drum department. He said, "I'm going to go see Buddy Rich," and it was an off night for me. And Ainsley heard about it, and Steve Perry heard about it. And Steve Perry being an ex-drummer and yeah. Angel, we all went together. Cool. So so uh, so Big Dave brought us to see the Buddy Rich band, and then somehow he got us backstage. <laughs> so there is a <laughs> I have a picture of me and Ainsley and Buddy and Big Dave, and Steve Perry was there, but he got cut out of the picture somehow. <laughs> and, I won't say anything. <laughs> and, um, and Buddy just looks like he's got a cigarette, and he looks like really distracted. Like, yeah. just like what? I'm going to get on the band bus. I've had enough of it. <laughs> I got to tell a quick, quick Buddy story. I had a similar situation. I went to see him for the first time in 1979 with a friend of mine that studied with Alan Dawson really good drummer. Um, and I took a couple of lessons from him. Who's a very shy guy. His name is Fred Klein. Grew up in Melrose, the town that I grew up in. And he called me. It was like a Monday afternoon, said, Buddy's playing tonight at Arlington High School. Mm-hmm. So we went together and it was, <clears throat> I think it was a last minute thrown together kind of thing where he had an open night. And this, and as I said, Fred was a shy sort of quiet guy. And during the intermission, he said, come on, let's go backstage and see if we can meet Buddy. And I'm, I'm like, what? No, we can't do that. And we did. We go back and it's like your typical auditorium where there's like a like, like a little corridor, you know, on the side of the stage and a door. And we go in and in the room is Armin, Lenny and Buddy. And I didn't know who they were. And, and he said, that's Armin Zildjian. That's Lenny Demuzio. And I'm like, oh, wow, cool. And we, we go in there and I and I asked him to sign my program, which he did. And I I, I hope I have it somewhere here. And then Fred, who again, I'll say again, was a a pretty shy guy goes up to Buddy, has him sign this program. And he said, Buddy, can you recommend any books on syncopation? And Buddy says, syncopation's up to you. And he said, but I mean, like, but can you recommend any books like the Ted Reed book or any other books? He goes, syncopation's up to you. <laughs> and we like ran out of there. <laughs> like, like a scene from the Wizard of Oz, you know, like, Right, so, right. That's uh, anyway, that, but it's a funny thing where you where your mother you know, said, "Come on, let's go see if we can meet Buddy," and you're like, "We can't do that." <laughs> right? Yeah, we can't do that. Like my mom. Uh, like, what? yeah, I know that's funny. All right, I'm gonna let's see if Rob is still. Um, yeah. All right, I'm gonna bring Rob in real quick, and uh, you got a few more minutes, Steve, to hang out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good, good, good. All right, and here he is, our good friend Rob Wallace. Good friend, to everybody. Hi, Rob. <laughs> connecting, connecting. Here he comes. Here he is. There he is. Hey, fellas. <laughs> Hi, Rob. How you doing? I'm great. How you doing? Good to see you, buddy. Yeah. Good. Time, Johnny. Too long. I know. I know. We'll have that call this week, too. We'll, we'll... Yeah, let's catch up. Hey, Steve. Hey, Rob. I, I didn't want to barge in. I texted Johnny. I said, you guys are such, it's such a good zone. Like, you know, <laughs> just li- I want to sit back into the stories, you know, forget this, you know. And I'm putting you back in the waiting room. Click. No, <laughs> no. I, I thought it would be cool to have, 
both of you guys, I mean, just knowing the history of like Steve and all the things that you guys have done together with Hudson and, you know, between books and, and DVDs and, you know, everything, I just thought it would be kind of a cool thing to just get you on here, maybe just to talk about some of that stuff for a minute. Sure. Yeah. And the weddings and bar mitzvahs, we, we do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the first thing that comes up for me is all of, all of the Hudson products, in a way, like the, their genesis is, is very organic. It's just like an idea will will float or like Rob will, will come to see, like you came to see uh, one of my clinics where I was talking about the history of drumming. And, and you said, why don't we document that? Yeah. You know, and, and, and all, all of them, it's not like we get together and think, what are we going to do to come up with a, a product? It's just, we're hanging out and we're talking about ideas and then a good idea will come up, like, yeah. you know, about yeah. documenting guys playing brushes or, you know, whatever the ideas are, they they seem to come about organically. And then then we'll harness the idea and turn it into a DVD and, or a book yeah. or, or something. But they all start with the just the idea that we we love music, we love drumming, and then something develops out of that. So I, I can... Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And I, I, you know, when you said that, it, it made me think of the time we were having lunch on the Upper West Side at that restaurant you loved with Diane. Fairway, Fairway. It wasn't Fairway. It was the other place further north. And oh. Andres Ferreira was with us. Oh, he's oh, okay. on right now. I can that. see Andres. Peace food. And, and, and yeah. we were there, and you started talking about how you were working on your grips. And you right. have a fork and a knife. <laughs> you like did this, you know, the whole, you know, and that was the genesis really for the Pathways of Motion, you know, book. Right. I mean, first we were doing some drum guru lessons for that. And then we realized there's too much stuff here. And, and, and it's such, such great, co you know, content that we turned it into the Pathways book. Exactly. Yeah, I remember that's that cool. lunch. <laughs> that's, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, I just feel so blessed that, you know, all these years, I mean, Steve, what was the first, what year was the first one? Was it 87? Well, then we're talking DCI. We're yeah. talking the DC, yeah, the DCI video and the Steve Smith part one and part two. That was, you had made some videos uh, at the collective and you did the Steve Gadd video where you were in the studio. Right. Where, where you... We famously called out Steve because you thought like something happened funny with the time. And he was like, no. <laughs> I don't know if I, I know this that. story. That is like one of those great moments. I said, I, you know, didn't that feel a little tentative? And he said, no. <laughs> oh, my God. I never heard that. Oh, my God. Oh, really? It's in, the, it's in that video. We left it in. Totally called me out, you know. Oh my! God. <laughs> <laughs> oh my and, God! And you, but you wanted to make one that was that had a little more production, right? So we, so, so we, we came up with, you know, my first video, Steve Smith part. part it was supposed to be like a 
40 minute video, but I ended up with a lot of material. So then it became part one and part two. And we recorded it at NFL studios in Philadelphia because they had a whole right. TV studio set up. So that, that was the beginning of like Hudson Muse, no DCI taking it up a notch technically. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah they, they, they would let us use, you know, and when they weren't, out when football season was quiet you know they had a lot of rooms to fill and there was no football stuff going on so they would let you know rent us these studios it was a pretty cool place down there yeah that was 87 1987 and yeah i remember you know coming up to your house you know outside of san francisco and that's that was kind of the first time we really met i think right yeah that's when i used to live in the bay area yeah Nevada. Yeah. Yeah. Novato. Yeah. That was, that was the first one, but anyway, yeah, it's been, you know, what's really interesting when Johnny sent the message and said, you know, maybe you could talk for a few minutes with us. You know, I didn't really know what I was going to say, but it, it, it kind of, you know, I kind of started thinking back to all the different projects we've done, Steve. And, you know, there's a very cool arc to them and mm-hmm. it's almost like they were planned out because they've really you know, sort of one almost leads into the next and yeah like steve said it's really organic but when you look at the whole body and i i don't i don't even know how many there are you know there's uh, you know quite a few yeah books and 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 the old dvds and everything but there's a really cool arc to the content and i think you know part of it is probably mirrored in steve is so studious and pra- you know practice I'll, I'll tell one quick story i know you guys have been at this for a long time but you know i think a lot of it is what steve is kind of focused on at that point in time like he the the pathways emotion book when he talked he was trying to figure out different match grip positions because he was getting practicing for journey so he's trying to Mm -hmm. figure out you know economy emotion how can he get a little more power and i think right steve that's how that whole project really developed within the restaurant with the fork and the knife um but the one story that i, I and i've told this you know to a bunch of people it was many years ago and um steve had we were working on a project i mean this could have been 15 20 years ago steve was we were working together on a project and i knew he was in europe for a couple of weeks and i knew the day he was getting home and i didn't call the night he got home, but the next, I called the next morning and I knew he was getting in that, you know, the previous night he'd been away for two or three weeks. And I spoke to his wife, Diane, and I said, I'm really sorry. I know Steve just got back, but I just have one question. You know, I forget what it was, you know, we're, we're hung up on something. I just got to run this thing, you know, by him. Cause we're, I don't, maybe we were editing a, a, a video or something. And, you know, I knew it was like 10 o'clock in the morning where he was. And, Diane said, um, I'd be happy to, Rob, but he's practicing. I said, I said, yeah, last night. I said, so, I mean, did he at least open the mail? She said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and it started. At that point, I threw up my hands. I said, another planet, you know. Oh, you were afraid like you're calling too early. Is he still sleeping? Is he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Seeing his wife like for yeah. three weeks, he's downstairs practicing, you know. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. Well, I, I, I got to finish. 
I finish a tour and then I got I got a lot of ideas that I want to work on. Yeah, no kidding. Well, that's awesome, Rob. And and that that's I was thinking like I started thinking about when I was still working at Zildjian and you you guys at Hudson were nice enough to have me on the sort of the you know the promo list and I'd get all the new stuff when it came out and 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 I was just to your point. I mean, there was a period of time where like and Steve, you would tell me this. We get on the phone or something, and you tell me, "Yo, I'm working on this thing with Rob." And 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 uh, I mean, there was just like so much stuff coming out, really good content and, and like educational stuff. And um, and I just I just thought it, it was in case people haven't seen this or weren't aware of it, I just thought it would be kind of a cool thing. While we Steve have Steve here to talk about it and even point them to you, Rob, you know, to from Guru or, or Hudson, wherever that stuff lives. And um, if people are interested, you know, because it's. Well, thank you. I, you know, I, I appreciate it, but I, I'd much rather be hearing these Charlie Watts stories. because. <laughs> well, I know I was just going to say that, and that to finish that, I, you know, I, we're all finding ourselves with a little more time to do reading and studying and practicing these days. So, but I, I got a quick, I want to, well, I have you both here and Steve, this is, this goes back to the Zildjian days we did in 1990. Um, you might remember there was like a, a kind of a, I think a, a run of about five or six Zildjian days in the early fall of 1990. And you came to the one in San Francisco, but you didn't play at it. Um, but right. Vinny was on the bill that night. And as was JR and I think Ralph Humphrey and some other guys, um, Hunt Sales, remember him? Mm. Yeah. And I think yeah. it was, I think that's when Vinny told us like in a very private um hang at the bar that night afterward that he had an invitation to play in Sting's band. Like this was like September of 1990 that he was going to either, I think he wasn't even auditioning. I think he had, he had been like asked to come and play with him in New York or something. So there was that, but then you played at the one at Zildjian day in New York. And do you remember that one? Yeah. It, at the Ritz. It was, I think it was at the Ritz. Was that a club? Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a theater. Yeah, a theater. Okay, Dave Weckl was on the bill that day as well, and you. I think you played with a band or one of your bands, Steve, and you played a version of Fire at the end of it, in solo. Mm. Jimi Hendrix Fire. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember. I I loved that tune and and would play it occasionally. Yes, that was that was one of the we all felt that was one of the greatest drum solos and performances any of us had ever seen. You. At that time, I mean, it, it, again, one of those nights where you just like hit on every cylinder. But the funniest part was you went out to dinner afterward at an Indian restaurant overseeing Central Park. This place called, you guys might remember it, it's Kenny Aronoff, Tristan Bowden. I think you were there, Steve, I thought. And Rob, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that sounds familiar, but that's it's, it's kind of a hazy memory, that one. Okay. But go ahead. Well, <clears throat> bunch of us go to dinner at this Indian restaurant. Kenny gets up on the table after dinner and he's like standing on the table in his cowboy boots and, you know, Kenny being Kenny, we go back to the bar at the, we were staying at the Mayflower hotel. Yeah. On okay. Central park West. And Lenny had opted Lenny and Armin had opted to not come to dinner. They just decided to hang back at the hotel. We get back to the hotel. It's a Sunday night. It's the bar is basically closed. Lenny's behind the bar playing bartender. And he's, he's like, and he's mixing drinks for people and, and I'm going, Colin and me and, and Mike Morris and a bunch of us get back there and we're going, what, what's going on? And he's like, Johnny, what are you, what are you drinking? 
<laughs> vodka tonic and he's mixing drinks security people come down and and they basically you know tell him he he has to leave we have to leave and he's walking out with a couple of bottles to take back to the room it was just it's a, it's a non sequitur kind of story but it was one of the funniest right. memories of lenny and it was it was so it's classic the, may, the, the mayhem that would happen at, after these events especially oh my god yeah yeah that was when we we talked about that for a long time that one it was a different time and a different era, really, you know, and I, I just feel blessed to have been a fly on the wall for a bunch of it because it was un- unbelievable. Some of those yeah. after Nam show dinner hangs and and after right. the, the hangs were just incredible. 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 I mean, the incredible. stories, yeah. the, you know, everything. It was just, you know, Lenny get out the spoons or he'd maybe have his banjo with him and he, you know. Do you yeah, guys no, remember how he played the banjo? He was actually a pretty good banjo player. He was. A, he used to play it at the Christmas parties. Yeah, he was a, a darn good banjo player. He could sit there. And, you know, we'd travel together to Nam shows or Pasic, and he'd have he'd come on the plane with his banjo in his in his case, like on the plane. And it was just, oh man, he was. You know, like you said, Rob, it was such a special time. Um, One class, like quick classic story, is Lenny took us out to a chat, like a Chinese restaurant, me and Vinny Kaliuta and a bunch of endorsers. And we went to a Chinese restaurant in Boston, you know, and it was supposed to be a dinner on Zildjian. And, and then something happened. I know the story. And he didn't have a credit card. They, they only took cash. And basically couldn't pay the bills. We all had to, like, they only took cash. That's what it was. They only took cash. So we all had to pay the bill. <laughs> And, and I, I just, I, yeah, and ah, uh, Colin like, told ah, me, yeah, yeah, exactly. Ah. And I think, and or Vinny told me this story too, where Lenny was kind of giving the waiter a hard time during the night too, just like kind of razzing him a little bit. And then when the, when the bill came, he took out his Zildjian card and they said, no credit cards, cash only. And Lenny's negotiating with the guy and in typical Lenny fashion saying, well, ah. Uh, this is uh, Steve Smith, and this is Vinnie Caliuto. I'm with the Zildjian Company. Can you just send us the invoice, and we'll, and we'll pay it? And the guy's like, no, no, no. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> oh, man. He but, must have been sweating because he loved to be the host. You know, Lenny just yeah, loved to yeah. you know, keep everybody happy, you know, and, and the food and drink flowing. So he must have really sweat that one out. That, <laughs> he probably did. As as much as he could ever sweat anything out. Yeah. So Rob, the hat you're wearing, the the American Drummer's Achievement Award, right? Oh. Which 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 was a you know a great Zildjian event that um, honored Max and Louis and Elvin and Roy. Roy, yeah. Yep. And and my job was to, to take care of Freddie Gruber. <laughs> oh boy. I remember. I got the, the assignment because, you know, Freddie could corner you and just, you know, talk your head off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so I think Lenny gave me the assignment. I think so. And I think specifically. And you got, you got Freddie and just take care of him. Yeah and, yeah and 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 you know and so you know we hung we had a, a really great time but basically it was to keep him from dominating a conversation with 
with one of the with Roy or Elvin or something. Yeah, so. <laughs> especially getting the pictures, we wanted to be sure we could get a great shot of the four of them and Armin, which we did end up getting. But but right. you know, Freddie Freddie could very easily walk up to those guys and and be in the picture. <laughs> Which wouldn't be the yeah. worst thing, but we wanted to come away with, you know, a press release quality exactly. of those guys. And, uh, but, you know, I know it was, it was Freddie. Talk about another. <laughs> another character. character. Yeah. What a character. Now, we're, we're lucky to have, you know, and, and I mean, we're, we're all still here, but I mean, during that time, you know, to have known these, these characters, as we call them. Unbel uh, Rob and I talk about this a lot. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unique, yeah. unique, unique characters. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I had another quick, funny story that I, I, I forgot, but um, yeah, it's okay. It'll, it, we'll do. We'll, I'll remember it for part two, Steve, when we do this next week. All right, so. part two sounds good. <laughs> One. No, um, I was going to just quickly, Steve, while you're here, I was going to ask you to, and and again, it's a really, it's it's so disjointed with what we're talking about. But I'd made a note about Brian Adams' heaven which is, I think, one of your greatest complete left turns from what we're talking about right now, but one of your greatest drum tracks, like for a, like a power ballad in the vein of, of um, you know, all the journey stuff that you have done. And can you just quickly talk about how that came about? Sure. Um, we Journey was touring and Brian Adams was the opening act. And it was a you know, a tour of, I don't remember how many months, but, you know, so many months. So when you tour like that with with other bands, you usually get to know the guys pretty well. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, Brian was a really nice guy and all the guys in the band were really cool. And, uh, you know, we, you know, I had good memories of just sometimes I'd be on his tour bus hanging out. You know, and, you know, we'd, we'd be in the parking lot kind of watching people <laughs> come into yeah, the arena. Yeah. And, stuff. and then he'd go out and do his thing. And, you know, he was great, great singer. And I liked all liked the music. And so, so he had written that tune, co-written, you know, with his songwriting partner. And in a, they, in the middle of the Journey tour, needed to record it as a for a soundtrack. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't like part of his album yet. You know, it was, it was just a one-off soundtrack. I think it was, the movie was called one of a kind or some, I don't know. I actually can't remember if that's right or not, but anyway. Um, and he used Mickey Curry in the studio as his studio drummer. Right. He used right. His, his regular band, but the drummer that, that he had, uh, Nick LaRocca, he didn't use him in the studio. So he had um, Mickey Curry and they went to the power station and they were starting to work on the song. But as far as I know, then uh, Mickey had to leave early yeah. and he didn't have time to finish the recording because I think he had a gig <laughs> with Hall and Oates and he had to like split yeah. in the yeah. middle of the session. And and Brian knew that I was in New York with a day off and he just called me and he said, you know, can you come down and help us finish this track? Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I got in a cab and went to the power station and Bob Clearmountain was the mm -hmm. engineer 
and yeah. he had his yeah. his drum set there. Every, you know, oh. I just I just walked in and played what was there. So it was a Ludwig drum set that I think had a, like twenty four inch bass drum, like two rack toms, two floor toms, and um, and Bob Clearmountain tuned it himself, and no he would kidding. come out in between takes and tweak the toms and whatnot. But they had that big sound like I was getting, for instance, like on Faithfully or something. And, and exactly. that's what they wanted, you know, that kind of approach. Um, and so I I learned the tune and, and maybe, you know, made a little cheat sheet. And, and then we just started going for takes. Wow. And you know, I, I always assumed it was your drum set because it sounds like your does, big yeah. sonar sound and Faithfully. Yeah. Right, I know it does have that sound, but it was it was Clear Mountain's personal Ludwig kit, and and one of the things about his miking technique, he put a Sennheiser four twenty one on the top of the tom and the bottom of the tom. Wow, he put him out of phase, but he you know he wanted to get a really huge tom sound. Interesting. So he would mic wow. both sides of the drum, and eventually you know we got a good take. And then I remember he had me just do some more fills, play some more fills that I think they eventually, like they might've put some in, you know, cut some, they splice, you know, it was yeah. like two inch tape. So they actually would splice some towards the end of the song, maybe on the fade out, they spliced in some. Well, that's that big, that big feel that you do that it's that sounds like it's live within the track. We go, yeah, that's that wasn't, no, I'd say, I'd say 95% of it was just played with the band live in the studio, yeah, yeah. But when I say that, like, I think they, I think like this last fill in the fade, that might have been something they spliced in there, yeah. But the tune itself, no, we just played it, so yeah, I was thrilled. Yeah, yeah I'll have to give it a listen. And he sent me a gold and platinum record, which is pretty uh, That's pretty sweet. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And our friend Steve Orkin gave us the name of the movie One Night in Heaven, I think is what I saw. I think that was the name of it. Thanks, Steve Orkin. And thanks, Steve Orkin, for helping promote today. A Night in Heaven, it's called. Yeah. Okay. All that's right. the perfect yeah, song. Sure I don't really remember that. All right. Well, Steve, I, I I know you've been here for almost an hour and a half, so I don't want to um, I don't want to hold you up too much more or <laughs> cut into too much more of your uh, your Saturday. Yeah. It's, um, well, no, I'm having a blast. But whatever, whatever you got, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to I am going to start making dinner soon. OK, no, that's cool. I'm going to see if there are any quick questions here I can throw at you. And I know. that. All right. All right. Let's see. I'll sign off and you, 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 you know, I don't want to interrupt. Let me sign off. Say goodbye to you both. I love you both madly. I love, love you too, Robbo. And, uh, and we uh, will catch up soon. Sounds okay. good, Rob. Sounds Thank good, you. Rob. John, take care, Steve. Say hi to Diane, all right? I will. Thanks. All right. Take care, you guys. See you, Rob. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. See you soon, buddy. All right. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. There's a lot of comments. I've just been letting them all build up here, Steve. All right. Um, is there anything you want to talk about that you're working well, on right I now? Mean, or I, I mentioned a couple. I want to mention a couple things. Like, oh, I, did, yeah. I did go on tour with Vital Information. You know, 
right before the whole COVID thing really shut down the music industry. And so I was touring and one of the gigs that I played with Vital Information was at the, the Drumeo Festival in Vancouver, Canada. Yeah. And, and they, they video, you know, they recorded that, that show and that just was released. So it's a nice documentation of vital information and, um, and you can, you know, you can check it out a whole, yep. there's a whole 60 minute show. Uh, and it was a, it was a great event. It was, you know, in the spirit of the modern drummer festivals and, you know, the festivals that, that we used to have. Uh, and, yeah. and, and most every, not everyone played with a band, but you know, there were a lot of bands. So it was, it was pretty cool. A lot of, a lot of great music happened. So that's yeah. And then the other thing I just want to mention is basically every weekend I put out something from my practice room. You know, I have a series called from the practice room. So what it's, whatever I'm, you know, working on and, uh, and I, make a solo or something. I have an editor, Christian Grissat, who lives in Nice, France. And, wow. and I, I, you know, I film myself with two Zooms and an iPhone. <laughs> and then I send them the files and he edits it into a, you know, a nice, nice video. Uh, and, yeah. and we've been working on this one thing. Like I, I've recently started working on the Wilcoxon book again which is something oh. I went through when I was a teenager, Charlie yeah. Wilcoxon books. And uh, I put out, I, re, I made, like, made a video of one of the solos called Ridmania a couple of weeks ago. And a lot of people are responding. They really liked it. So I really got into it. So next weekend, I'm going to be putting out like a, some long videos about it, about how, you know, working, I call it working with Wilcox. And so there's like a 15 minute video that I'm going to put out. And then the next day, part two, will have, I'm going to play a tune called Paradiddle Johnny. I don't know. All right. Paradiddle Johnny. And it's, and I, I play it like on my pad and then I play it on the kid. I play it at four different tempos. So kind of demonstrating like starting to learn something, getting it a little faster and then playing it up to tempo yeah and then then there's like in some outtakes you know so so that'll be coming up and uh, and that's on my cool. facebook instagram twitter youtube yep. everything incidentally when i play with my band grand theft audio i play every song at four different tempos <laughs> Just... <laughs> anyway that um, takes that's some doing takes some doing <laughs> <laughs> it comes naturally, Steve. It's easy. It comes naturally. It comes naturally. That's funny. I like that. Oh, oh man. Well, this has been this has been great. This has been so much fun. Oh, um, all right. Let me see. I think I just thought Jeff Hamilton was still here. Wow, this is great that he's hanging on. Um, Jeremy Driesen, my buddy that lives on Martha's Vineyard, is asking how much of an influence Gary Chapey was. And someone asked how long you studied with Alan Dawson. So we'll throw those couple of questions at you. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So <clears throat> right out of high school, graduated in 72, went to Berkeley, September, 1972. And oh. 
Gary Chafee was my teacher. He, you know, you, you get assigned a private instructor and it was Gary's first year teaching at Berkeley. And it was just like a, a fortuitous event because he kind of blew my mind as he did a lot of drummers because my teacher that I talk about, Billy Flanagan, was in a great teacher, but very much out of a tradition, you know, mm-hmm. the tradition of uh, reading, sight reading, rudiments, jazz coordination. And Gary Chafee was working on developing what he called odd groupings, you know, so it was getting familiar with playing groups of five, groups of seven, groups of nine, in, you know, quintuplets or septuplets, and then also phrasing, you could play the same, you know, rhythms of five, seven, or nine, or 11, or whatever, in triplets or in 16th notes. or It was kind of mind-expanding material. Yeah. And I would literally leave the lesson with a headache sometimes. Yeah. But it was a, it was great stuff. And and he was he had other so he was a big influence. He had other really ideas of like how to move on the drum set. So you didn't always move in a typical, you know, start up here and then go down the toms. You know, like different ways of moving on the kit uh that were creative and interesting. So so he was very innovative. So I studied with him for for a year. Mm. that year and then the next year I studied like a whole year with Alan Dawson now Alan Alan Dawson's lessons were in some ways very more related to my original teacher you know using the methods Mm -hmm. of like the syncopation book that buddy (laughs) didn't go through (laughs) yeah (laughs) and the stick control book but doing it in in ways that were very musical and in in fact like I would, he would have me sing a melody of a jazz standard and then play the material. So it was in form. And I think that that was like a a beautiful turning point for me where I got really inside of how to play in form. And then you like, so, okay, that, that was an AABA form. So next week, how about an AABC form? or a 12 bar blues or, or something where, you know, you had, you had to play a tune and, and identify the form and, and play your lesson with the form. And sometimes he would play the vibes and I'd play the drums. And, you know, so it was technically high level, but, it, but it was musically, you know, really informed musically. And then by the, third year I went back to Chafee and that's when you know Vinnie Kaliuta showed up yeah, so yeah then I spent another year studying again with Gary Chafee I did do some other lessons when I was there with with some of the other instructors but they were like timpani lesson and vibes lessons which after a while I let go of because it took for me it took too much work to really develop those instruments. Mm-hmm. And, and I decided I just f- wanted to focus on the drum set. But a lot yeah. of students were like, they do everything, you know, like yeah. they try to, you know, 
play all all percussion instruments, and that was not unusual in those right. days. In fact, like while I was a drum student before I went to Berkeley, I had vibes and I played vibes. You know, my my last couple of year, years of high school, I played vibes, and I took I piano know. and I took yeah. piano lessons from a teacher in Boston, Jerry Goschuk. And because it was, it was, you know, part of a musical education. Yeah. So I played piano vibes and, and, but eventually I just felt like it took so much time and to be good at it took too much time. Yeah. Yeah. And so I decided I was just going to specialize in the drum set. That's worked out well. I was going to say, I'm kind of a multi-instrumentalist too. I play besides drums, tambourine, uh, maracas, Mm. So, claves, claves, yep, yep. Excellent. So, <laughs> um, oh, and and my friend Rich Farago asked me to ask you to talk about Drum Fantasy Camp, which is coming up too. And we we want to make sure we plug that because that's hey, there's Michael Shreve. Hey, Michael. Hi, Michael. Wow, everybody, big hand for Michael Shreve in the house, yes. along with Jeff Hamilton. Wow. Very cool. From Seattle, living yeah. out in Seattle. Um, well, Drum Fantasy Camp, the, the origins of it, in a way, it dates back to Dave Weckl and myself doing a lot of drum camps, like we'd both be doing them. And then we, Dave and I uh, both have Steve Orkin running, doing our, running our websites. He's our webmaster. So, you know, so we, we have, uh, we had conversations with Steve Orkin about the idea of having a drum camp. Uh, and Steve took it on himself really to organize it, you know, to, yeah. it's like one thing to have the ideas, but it's difficult to really make it happen, pull it together and make it, make it happen. But one, one, we were, um, Dave and I were both teaching at, <clears throat> a camp in Marktoberdorf, Germany called Rhythm. It's in Southern, it's in Bavaria. A lot of, a lot of drummers have taught there. And one night after the, we were teaching, we were just talking about our, our educational backgrounds. And I talked about going to the Stan Kenton camp, you know, like, and, and it turned out Dave went to a Stan Kenton camp. And then Chad Wackerman was with us. <laughs> he said he he went to the Stan Kenton camp. So we were all talking about like how transformative that experience was. And yeah. one of the the reasons it was those those camps were transformative is because you played music. It wasn't they, they weren't drum camps? They were music camps. Yeah, yeah. And so we decided, you know, so Dave and I were saying if we did something where you know we could have some input on a camp, we'd want a band. We'd want to have a band that the people could play with. And so that's where drum fantasy camp in a way is different than a lot of the drum camps is that there's a rhythm section. And it started out with some of the guys from my band, you know, Vital Information, Baron yep. Brown, Vinny Valentino. And, and eventually Vinny took over as the musical director. So my guitarist, Vinny Valentino is the musical director at drum fantasy camp. And he always organizes an amazing band. And so there's, you know, there's great drummers teaching and, uh, and then the drummers play with the bands and then the, the campers, the students 
yeah. get to play with the band. So they get to have a, an experience of playing with high level musicians. And, you know, that's where you really learn about musicianship and really learn how to play music. Because one thing to play the drums is another thing to play music. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's so such a great idea. That yeah. focal point. We, you know, we really try to make that a focal point of the drum fantasy camp yeah. experience. And Steve's been doing it for not quite 20 years, but probably 15 years, if I had to guess. I think, well, it could be 12. I think 12. Okay. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Well, I don't know. It might be 2007 was the first one. Okay. Now, I just, I remember, you know, Maybe 12, 13 years. The, yeah, the whole concept. And um, it's great. It's, it's, it's like you just said, I mean, having the whole idea of playing with other musicians is just, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's what's missing, but there's so much of, of drummers just playing by themselves and that's cool. But, you know, we all grew up like playing in bands and that's, to me, there's nothing better than that, you know? That's right. And, you know, and, and the, the takeaway there is that your best teachers are the musicians that you're playing with. You know, because yeah. it's one thing, yeah. it's one thing to, to take lessons and learn how to play your instrument. But you have to, you know, of course, play your instrument in context with the other musicians. So in a way, my, you know, my best teachers are, are the other musicians that I've played with that are giving me direct feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what what it is that I'm doing that's working or what it is that I'm doing that's not working. And then you make the adjustments to develop your musicianship. Yeah. No, that that's exact. And Steve just commented and said 2007. So you were right. 2007. Steve Smith. Yeah. Thank you, Steve Working. Yeah. And it's um, well, the other and the other part of it is just the hang. It's like a beautiful hang and everyone gets inspired just because yeah, there's yeah. that energy of drumming, you know, music and, and, and it's an all immersive four or five day experience and people leave inspired. That's cool. That's yeah. really, really cool. Yeah. Well, Steve, I think we should wrap it up because you have to make dinner. What are you making for dinner tonight? By the way, that's someone asked that question. Yeah. Trout. Trout. Nice. Freshly caught today in the lake? Uh, not in the lake, but uh, so we go to the farmer's market on Saturday. And, right. and one of the farms actually, besides having, you know, all kinds of great vegetables and whatnot, they raise trout. <laughs> and, and they're already cleaned. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so i have a recipe you know and and uh we you know so we'll roast some vegetables and then Great. have a couple trout and it'll be and a little rosé oh yeah it's perfect rosé and it'll be uh, our saturday saturday night trout fish feed <laughs> yep. put on some reruns some me tv some no, i don't know we don't, don't get we don't get tv here you don't no, no. I mean, we barely have internet. I have, I have my hotspot. That's and and that's it. So, I wow. put on, a, I put on an LP. That's that's way hip. That's yeah. Now I feel like a total schmuck for suggesting you watch TV. I'll put, I'll put on. Here's what I'm going to put on tonight. Don't go away. Okay, right? let's see. Yeah, this is this is an added bonus here.
So, oh, look at that. So this is a Quincy Jones record and the drummer is Charlie Persip. Yes, rest rest in peace, Charlie. Yeah, yeah. and he just passed. So I, I want to listen to, and it's a great jazz album. A lot of beautiful playing, nice arrangement. Not a lot of arranging. It's like a lot of nice soloing. Paul Chambers on yep. bass, and and so that's we'll groove on that for a while, and then see where it takes us. Yeah, cool, awesome. All right. All right well, this has let's been totally. Um, this has been great. Hang on for one second, Stephen. I'm I'm going to end the broadcast and say goodbye to everybody, and then I'll, I'll say goodbye to you okay. in the room. So just hang tight for one second, All and. Right. Uh, just want to thank everybody for watching. Don't forget Wednesday. This big hand for Steve Smith, everybody. Little virtual clapping. Um, put some clap emojis up, please. <laughs> oh, Jeff Hamilton saying, Boynier uh, with with the trout. He's he's recommending a white. Oh, not a rose. Not a rose. You, you know Jeff. <laughs> he's he knows his wines. He does. Anyway, anyway, um, I've been listening to when, Jeff's album most nights too. Catch me if you can. We put that on too. Oh, dig it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good, Don't have good, it on good. LP though. But no, no, no. But maybe. Uh, but I just wanted to let everybody know that Wednesday, uh, this coming Wednesday, September second, Danny Serafin, a good friend of Steve's and mine, will be here at. 2 p.m. Eastern time, uh, right on this channel. So check out Danny, original drummer from Chicago, and that'll be great. And hope you guys enjoyed this as much as I did. It's been a blast, Steve. Thank you so much. Hang on. And um, my, my, I, I want to say one thing about Danny. Just one. Yeah. Yeah. One, please. Because I, I like when I talked about that I did a journey tour, right? And I did a Vital Information first record in 1983, did a journey tour, and then did a Vital Information tour, okay? Yeah. So I wanted to take a vacation after the journey tour before the Vital Information tour, but I wanted to practice my drums while I was on vacation. Yeah, yeah. And, but my wife at the time, Susan, wanted to go to Hawaii. So as it turns out, I talked to a travel agent that somehow knew about Danny Serafin had a house in Hawaii with a drum set in the house. <laughs> I didn't know so, this. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I first met Danny. So I, so I said, so if, if I rent Danny's house, can would he let me play his drums? <laughs> so, so the travel agent said, I don't know, let's ask him. So I got on the phone. Yeah. And he was super cool. And he yeah. had this unbelievably awesome home in Kauai, like right on the water. Yeah. Totally on the water. And and in the basement was his was his drum set. And he told me, yes, you know, you could you could shed on my kit. So I rented the place for two weeks and I practiced every day <laughs> on his kit. And then I went that's on so to the vital info tour. That's so 